If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. Jesus is saying that any person can know whether or not my teaching is directly from God if he's willing to do the Father's will. That is a powerful statement. See, there are some people who never come to know the truth because they don't really want to do the truth. Because by nature, they are unrepentant and stubborn in heart. That's why Jesus said two times over, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. There has to be a willingness to do the will of God in order to understand the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, The Debate in the Midst of the Feast. In John chapter 7, verses 14 through 36, we are in chapter 7 of our study in the Gospel of John. We have seen the interplay between Jesus and his brothers in a message entitled, The Doubt Before the Feast. And as Jesus goes up to the temple to celebrate the Feast of Booths, in today's message, he is dealing with critics who accuse him of performing a healing miracle on the Sabbath. But Jesus points out that the Pharisees are not predisposed against circumcision on the Sabbath and that it is as much work as Jesus's miracle. As we pick up in verse 24, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter, which is the crowds judging by appearance instead of judging righteously. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. This morning we come to the debate in the middle of the feast. And they debate over three issues. And by the way, if you read that Time Newsweek or heard the ABC documentary, you will discover these same three issues that are covered in those different scenarios are covered in our text of Scripture this morning. So listen carefully. First, they debate over his doctrine. Verse 14. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Now the feast lasted a day, and following that day there was a special holy convocation, what many refer to as the last day of the feast, the Sabbath that followed. But halfway through the feast, when the Lord senses the timing is right, this is the fullness of time, this is the right time, he goes up and he begins to teach. Verse 15, the Jews therefore were marveling, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? Now remember, people came from all over to this feast, and many are hearing the Lord for the first time, and they're absolutely ast astonished. How is it that he has learned how is it? Because he's never been educated, at least not in their schools. Now, the word learned here is a very interesting word in the original. It literally means learned letters. And the word is always put into the context of whatever science it is that it's dealing with. Here, they're saying Jesus is learned in the sacred letters of Holy Scriptures. How is it he's never been to one of our approved schools? How is it that he knows so much of the Bible and can speak the way he does? When we come to the end of this chapter, we'll see some of the temple police. When they go to arrest Jesus, they're absolutely astonished when they hear him preach. And they will say, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. A number of months earlier in Galilee, as recorded in Matthew 7, we're told the multitudes were amazed at his teaching. For his teaching is one having authority, not as their scribes. 
So how can this fellow with no formal theological education be so bold in the Scripture? By the way, his disciples had the same trait. Remember that in Acts 4? Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. By the way, this same kind of intellectual snobbery continues to our own day. Most Bible colleges and seminaries would not think of putting anyone on their faculty who did not have a learned, formal, academic degree. You can have a man who has studied hard under the tutelage of God the Holy Spirit, who's God-anointed, who knows the Bible, accurately handles it, and yet he would never be considered. Why? Because it's not a recognized education. Sometimes even Christian young people look at pastors and they say, you know, he went to so-and-so seminary. If I go to that seminary, I'll be a great preacher like him. What they don't understand is that what made Christ so great, his apostles so great, and any preacher of God today is the power of the Spirit upon their life. Verse 16 says, Jesus therefore answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Now that is a very profound statement in the light of the way rabbis were educated in that day. From the rabbinical writings that have come down to us, along with some of the writings of Josephus, we know that the uh, rabbis would substantiate everything they teach, much like a lawyer defends a case in a court of law. A lawyer very often will look for a precedent case, and they'll say, well, you know, in Brown versus the Board of Education, it said so-and-so, and, and they'll use a precedent. Well, rabbis did that very thing. They would quote Rabbi Shammai or Rabbi Hillel or Rabbi Hillel would quote Rabbi Gamaliel and Rabbi Gamaliel would quote Rabbi Gumballs or whoever it was. And there was always some precedent. But Jesus didn't operate on that basis. He didn't have another rabbi who discipled him. Now, he knew the basis he, he, they had operated on. He grew up going to temple. He grew up going to the synagogue there in Nazareth. But he doesn't quote them. Why? Because he said, my teaching is from God. My teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. I've got this straight from God the Father. I go straight to God himself, and that's where my message comes from. Now, please understand, that's a, a powerful claim. Now, it doesn't mean that he didn't study the word. He was as much human as he is God, so he had to study the scriptures. He had to pour over the word of God and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But nonetheless, he says, my teaching is directly from heaven. Major question. How do you know if that's true? And how do you know if it's true? How would they know if it's true? Well, he tells us, verse 17. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. Jesus is saying that any person can know whether or not my teaching is directly from God if he's willing to do the Father's will. That is a powerful statement. See, there are some people who never come to know the truth because they don't really want to do the truth. Because by nature... They are unrepentant and stubborn in heart. That's why Jesus said two times over, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. There has to be a willingness to do the will of God in order to understand the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why sometimes, say you talk to someone who's in an immoral relationship. You talk to them about the Lord and then they begin to say, well, you know, I don't know if I believe there's a God. 
Or I'm not sure whether the Bible's the Word of God. I'm not even sure if there's a heaven or a hell. And you try to describe to them why they should believe, but you can't seem to go forward. The real problem is not a lack of apologetic because there's a plethora of evidence for any thinking person who is willing to look at it. The real problem is a moral problem. You see, because while they may have never read the Decalogue in Exodus 20 that says, Thou shalt not commit adultery, God wrote it into their heart, into their consciences. We may not be able to post it on the walls in our schools, but God has posted it on every man's heart. And so all men have a knowledge and an awareness of what's right and what's wrong. They can lose that knowledge and awareness by rebelling against God, but nonetheless they have it. And so some people, because they're living in open rebellion against God, unwilling to do the will of God, they really can't discern whether the teachings of Christ are for real. Now, this is a topic that is being introduced here, and it's going to unfold in this gospel. The principle that light responded to brings more light. And so he says, if any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. If you are willing to respond to the light you have, willing to do the will of the Father that is written into your heart, then you will know. But if you will not do what God has already shown you, your eyes will never be opened. Now, understand here, Jesus is not saying that you have to come to a certain level of moral achievement before you can become a believer. When we come to the eighth chapter, he will say a man who's in sin is a slave to sin. But there has to be a willingness to do the will of God if God is ever going to open your eyes to the truth of the gospel where you believe and are saved. And many of you here this morning have taken that challenge. You said, God, I'm willing to know. I want to know. I am willing to know. And because of your openness of heart, God opened your eyes and he showed you the gospel and the truth of his son. And he took the self-righteous and he caused them by his grace to see the reality of Christ's teaching, and they fled to him for forgiveness. He took the drunk, he sobered him, he took the gay person and made him straight, he took the immoral person and made them pure. He has a way of changing life if you are willing to do the Father's will. Now look at verse 18, notice what he says. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. Now unfortunately some people, especially the religious leaders at hand, we're only interested in their own glory. Today we have people all bound up in their own ego, their own ideas, their own plan. And that's why he's mentioning it in this context, because that's the problem with these leaders. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, speaking of himself, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. If Jesus were out just to build his own name and to promote his own glory, he would have taken his brother's offers. He would have went up to Jerusalem done a plethora of miracles, they would have all crowned him as king and he would have basked in his own glory. But he didn't come to simply glorify himself, but to do the Father's will and to glorify him. And so this one who's the embodiment of truth says he seeks not his glory, but the Father's glory. Now look at the question he asked to reveal where they are at in verse 19. Interesting question. Did not Moses give you the law? Indeed he did. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Now God through Moses 
had given the nation of Israel the Scriptures, the Pentateuch, and ultimately the entire Old Testament. Paul notes this in Romans 3, that they were the custodians of the Word of God. But Jesus makes a very important point that there's a difference between receiving the law and obeying the law. Moses gave them the law. The problem was they weren't keeping the law. Far from keeping the law, they wanted to put Christ to death. Now Moses wrote, thou shall not murder. But they want to take the innocent son of God and to put him to death because they're lawbreakers. It goes back to what we read in verse 17. If any man is willing to do the will of the Father, they were unwilling. And he's illustrating their unwillingness. Look at verse 20. Their response, the multitude answered, you've got a demon. Who seeks to kill you? They deny that they are plotting to put him to death. This is what, by the way, what most people do when they're caught in sin. They say, oh, there's not another woman. I don't have a drug problem. Oh, I don't have a problem with alcohol. Oh, we're not seeking to kill you. The problem is not with me, it's with you, Jesus. I've heard that so many times. Oh, I don't, there's no other woman, Pastor. It's her. She's the problem. So they put it on Jesus. You've got a demon. What an accusation to put against the Son of God. But his claims are so fantastic. He claims to be God in human flesh. His claims are so great. He is either whom he claimed to be, or he is deranged, a deceiver, demon-possessed, or a combination of all of the above. So he illustrates his point to them, that they're really not taking responsibility for their sin. Notice, he answered and said to them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. Now, he's referring to that deed that he did a year before, the last time he was in Jerusalem. We studied it in John chapter 5 when he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda who had been paralyzed for 38 years. Now, one deed evoked marvel. Now, typically the word marvel we think of in a positive connotation, but in English it can have a negative connotation, as Webster's indicates, and that's the context in which it's being used here. You were astonished. You were marveling. Not the kind of astonishment that led to praise, but the kind of astonishment that led to hatred. He had done work on the Sabbath. He healed a man on the Sabbath. And John 5, 18 said their conclusion was he's worthy of death. On this account, verse 22, follow his argument. On this account, Moses has given you circumcision. Not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. Now, they had received instruction from God that a little baby boy on the eighth day should be circumcised. It was an outward sign that they were the covenant people of God, the nation by which God had chosen to bless all, bless all the nations of the world because Messiah would be a Jew and come through them. And really in preciseness, he says, no, it was given by Moses, but first instituted from the fathers. Go all the way back to Genesis 17. It's first given to Abraham. But nonetheless, in Leviticus chapter 12 and verse 3, God said, on the eighth day, a baby boy is to be circumcised. Well, what if the eighth day fell on the Sabbath? Remember the fourth commandment they took very seriously. Don't do any work on the Sabbath. Yet God prescribed it didn't matter what day it fell on. 
If the eighth day was a Sabbath day, nonetheless, you circumcised your child. It took precedence just as it did historically in the way it was originally given. So he says, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? You see what he's saying? He's saying if God allowed this kind of quote unquote labor to circumcise a little boy on the Sabbath day, wouldn't he have permitted for a whole man to have been made well if he would allow for this ritual ceremony to take place? Wouldn't he have allowed for this man who had been in his palsy for 38 years to have been healed? And he speaks of not just a part of the body, but the whole person. Because we saw the healing in John 5 was not just physical, but spiritual. This man came to faith. So Christ says in verse 24, when you're thinking about me, when you're considering me and who I am, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. You know, one of the favorite verses in the sinner's Bible, there's three, you know, Jesus drank wine and God helps those who help themselves and judge not lest you be judged. They love that verse. Judge not lest you be judged. You talk about it. Oh, judge not lest you be judged. Well, you read that verse in its context in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus will go on to say to exercise discernment. You don't cast your pearl before swine. So there's some kind of judgment that God allows. I'm not judging someone to say that adultery is wrong. Drunkenness is sin. Homosexuality is a perversion because God has already made that judgment. And here Jesus plainly says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. He's telling them not to judge with a superficial criteria. They had wrongfully judged him by misapplying the word of God. That's what this debate is all about. How is this man learned, having never been educated? They're debating over the word of God. They're debating over the person of Christ when what they really need to be thinking about is the way they handle Scripture. Because the way they handle Scripture is a contradiction in terms. If God would allow a little baby to be circumcised, the spirit of the law is very clear. He'd allow a man to be completely healed on that day. Now, that's the debate over his teaching. Now, it comes to the next level. We move now from the de debate over his teaching to the debate over his origin. Notice verse 25. Therefore, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Now, as you read through this chapter, there's a number of different groups throughout this chapter. There are the Jews, as they're called, mentioned in verse 2, verse 11, verse 15. Remember who the Jews were? Who were the Jews? Yeah, the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders. He's not using it just to refer to all Hebrew people, but to a specific group, a subset, namely the Pharisees. There's also mentioned in this chapter the multitude. If you have the new New American Standard, I think it renders it the crowd uh, who are here for the feast. Uh, they're first mentioned uh, in verse 20. But then in verse 25, you come to those who are called the people of Jerusalem. They knew about this plot against the Lord Jesus. It didn't originate with them. It originated with their leaders. And so the question by this Jerusalem group of people, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Answer, yes. It expects a yes answer in the original. So they're confused. They're thinking, wait a minute. This is the one they want to knock off. 
This is the one they want to kill. If this is the one they want to kill, why aren't they doing something? In fact, they're listening to him. Notice. And look, he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. They're impressed that he is speaking openly, knowing that they had a plan to kill him. And yet they ask, the rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? In essence, they're saying, look, if these rulers are listening to him speak, these ones who have a plan to kill him, it's well known, why aren't they doing something? Is it possible that they think he's the Messiah? And of course, they immediately dismiss it. It implies again a no answer. And further in verse 30, 27, it says, however, we know this, where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he's from. He can't be the Messiah because we know where he's from. Now, the reason they dismiss that he could be the Christ is because they know, number one, he's from Nazareth. And a tradition had developed in this day that while the Jews knew that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. They believed that during his whole earthly life, he would be hidden. And then suddenly, dramatically, he would come to the temple. So they thought, well, we know where he's from. He's been in Nazareth for three decades. He's just the village carpenter. He can't be the Christ. But they had their facts all wrong. Number one, he wasn't from Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. And number two, in one sense, God had hidden them right under their own noses in the least likely of all places that the Christ would come from Hicksville, from this Roman garrison town, a town where people were despised from Nazareth. And he had come to the temple on this occasion. Look at verse 28. He tries to help them to understand. Jesus, therefore, cried out. It's a verb that means he shouted. With a loud voice, he yelled at them. He cried out in the temple teaching and saying, you both know me and know where I'm from. Now take that phrase for a second. You both know me and you know where I'm from. And turn over a page to chapter 8 and verse 19. I don't have a slide on this. But if you read 8 19, it seems contradictory. You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. So on the one hand, he says, you both know me, you know where I'm from. Here in 728 and in 819, he says, you don't know me. Well, which is it? Well, again, the liberals who, Peter said, distort the scriptures to their own destruction. They say, a contradiction in the Bible. But please understand, the construction of verse 28 indicates that the Lord is speaking with a deep sense of irony. In some of the paraphrase translation, it will bring this out. J.B. Phillips, who wrote a superb paraphrase of the New Testament in the 1950s, translates it in this way. So you know me and you know where I'm from? Sarcastically? Now, this is true of many people today. Think about it. All over America, people say, oh, I know the Lord. You know Jesus is your Savior? Yeah, I know Jesus is my Savior. I go to church. But do you really know him? See, that's the sense here. 88% of America, according to that ABC poll, identify with Christianity in some way, shape, or form. But I doubt 88% of America really knows the Lord. Oh, they say they know God, but do you really know Him? Notice he says, he puts it into plain English, I have not come to myself, but He, I have not come of myself, but He who sent me is true, whom you don't know. There it is, you don't really know Him. He's making it clear my teachings didn't originate from myself, nor did my mission originate from myself. He said, I've not come of myself. Why? Because I'm sent. You might want to circle that word sent. Jesus was not just born into this world. He was sent into this world. He who sent me is true, and you don't know him. 
Now, he's not saying it in sarcasm, but in plain English, you don't know God. And why? Because verse 17 indicates they weren't willing to do his will, as he just illustrated with the illustration of circumcision. I know him, verse 29, because I am from him, and he sent me. They were seeking, therefore, to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. They couldn't knock him off. Because he's working on a divine timetable. By the way, there's a truth there for you. You know you're immortal if you're walking with God. Nobody can take your life. No weapon formed against you can stand, the Bible says, if you're walking with God until God decides that it's to be the last day of your life. Now, you say, what if I'm not walking with God? Well, Romans 8.28 is a promise for the one who is actively loving the Lord. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him, to those who are actively obeying Him, to those who are the called according to His purpose. And, of course, God can pick up the mess that we've made and begin to make that verse a reality all over again. But nonetheless, they wanted to seize Him, but nothing could happen to Him until the Father destined for Him to die. Verse 31. But many of the multitudes believed in him. And they were saying, when the Christ shall come, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? Many in that multitude were going around saying, look it, when the Christ shall come, when Messiah comes, he won't do more signs and miracles than this one has done, will he? Implied answer, no. Implication, he's got to be the Messiah. No one else can do these miracles on the level and of the type. He has got to be the Christ. So what did they do? They believed. Now, of course, the response of many of these Jewish people created a real problem among the leadership. Notice, if you will, verse 32, a number get embittered. The same son that Hardens the clay, melts the wax in some people's lives. Some people get hardened over truth. Look at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the multitude muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Now the Pharisees were afraid because their ignorance had been blasted. Their wisdom had been challenged. Their security had been attacked. Their religion had been undermined. Their power, they were losing it. So what do they do? The Pharisees, remember there's about 6,000 of them. They're the ruling religious body. They're the legalists of the day. And the chief priests, notice it's in the plural. Now there was one chief priest or one high priest in Israel. But we're living at a time when Rome basically was running the Jewish people. They selected their own chief priests, typically corrupted men. And so even after a man stepped down from being the high priest, he was allowed to retain that title. And the chief priest came from a group of people called Sadducees. The Pharisees were the legalists. The Sadducees were the liberals. We're told in the Bible that they didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They basically wrote off the supernatural. And typically, these two groups would knock heads. On one occasion... Paul's in deep trouble. They arrested him. He comes into this court. He's got Pharisees and Sadducees. And so what Paul does is he brings up a statement that he knows is going to create an argument. They start fighting with themselves and they forget all about the Apostle Paul. In either case, these were strange bedfellows. But because there was a common hatred, a common cause to get rid of this one who is usurping their power... They get the temple police to go get him. 
If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 022. One of the most difficult questions posed by both Christians and skeptics of Christianity is the question, what about those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, Dr. Brogy answers that question biblically and clearly by explaining the justice of God, the lostness of mankind, and the incredible power of the gospel in his book, Are the Unevangelized Really Lost? You can receive your own copy with a donation of any amount to Search the Scriptures. Please call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 to receive your copy today. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.